Rosie! She going for a wet walk? What do you reckon? Okay. It's really horrible out there. You up for it? Good enough. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. So Soggy Fly Past from the Hairy Bullet. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Ugh, it's really grim out here in rural Norfolk today at the beginning of October 2020. Rose, this way, look. You like this way? Oh, I love that way. There you go. Now she's got a spring in her step. She's been lying around this morning. I think she's a bit hungover. We told her about Donald Trump getting SARS-CoV-2. And um, I think she had a few too many glasses of Schadenfreude. I never touch the stuff, obviously, so I'm feeling great. But look, it's a busy episode. So let me tell you about my guest for podcast number 132. The British singer, songwriter and entertainer, I'm just going to go for pop star, Robbie Williams. Here's a few Robbie facts for you, in case you need reminding. Robbie, currently aged 46, found fame as a member of the pop group Take That from 1989 to 1995. But he achieved even greater commercial success with his solo career, beginning in 1997. Since then, Robbie has received a record 18 Brit Awards, including four awards for Best British Male. That's more than me. Two for Outstanding Contribution to Music and the 2017 Brits Icon Award for his lasting impact on British culture. In 2004, he was inducted into the UK Music Hall of Fame after being voted the greatest artist of the 1990s. His record sales stand at over 77 million worldwide, making him one of the best-selling artists of all time. Behind those stellar stats, however, Robbie has been candid about his frequent struggles with anxiety, low self-esteem and various addictions, particularly during the busiest parts of his career. He moved closer to what seems to be a more stable and happy personal life, in 2010, when Robbie married American actor Ida Field. The couple now have four children together, the youngest of which was born earlier this year. Enforced downtime in 2020 has led to Robbie and Ida sharing their various domestic adventures in a podcast series called At Home with the Williamses. And Robbie has also been entertaining fans with live online karaoke sessions that he calls corona Oki. There's a link in the description of the podcast to him doing Not Too Badly at All at Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Going through the gate. Hang on. 
Rosie, don't go down there. Double gates. Gareth and Bill there. Our conversation was recorded via video link in mid-September 2020. And among other things, we talk about insecurity, oversensitivity, UFO sightings, what it's like to be dissed by a musical hero from beyond the grave, whether I'll be invited to Robbie's private island, why the Brit Awards weren't fun, and how we came to be in touch in the first place, given that, as I admitted to Robbie, I was one of those people back in the 90s and on into the 2000s who sometimes found it hard to be enthusiastic about the swaggering entertainment juggernaut version of Robbie Williams. This episode contains very strong language. It just pops out at you without warning every now and again. And it's the strongest of all the language. So watch out, please. I'll be back at the end for Adam and Joe Show News and a podcast recommendation. But right now, with the winner of Rear of the Year 1997 and the Smash Hits Award for Best Haircut in 1993, here we go. doing Robbie nice to meet you nice to meet you too Adam I'm doing really good talk to me about your white beard but your black hair <laughs> well my hair is actually it's not quite black but certainly the mission creep of the white hairs has not reached the top of my head yet it's going down it's sort of emanating from my chin up the sides of my face and then it goes down and it's affected my chestal region, and then it extends down to the top of the Netherlands mm-hmm. in the groin zone. That's too much information, but <laughs> um, it hasn't so far gone onto the top of the head, which is quite nice. But what is happening is that everything's just thinning out. Yes, you know. So now it's like under harsh lights. Yes, I just look like thin hair guy. I think your black hair looks very stoic. Like it's fending off the beard. Mine too has thinned out on the top and under harsh light, which our job requires us to be in, it exposes the grim truth. <laughs> and uh, I actually did a tour, my last tour, I was waking up with hair on my pillow every morning, like large clumps of hair on my pillow. And at one point during the tour, I looked to see how many dates I'd got left and tried to figure out whether I'd have enough hair to reach the end of the tour. <laughs> when, when was that? That was uh, two years ago. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about, um, I mean, to begin with, how do we come to be talking today? You and I who have never met in real life before. And we're both sort of 90s guys. Yes. How is it that we are now connected via the internet? 
Um, I enjoy your podcast. I'm a fan. But we have a friend in common, right? John Ronson. Yeah, who you went UFO hunting with for a Radio 4 program. Um, I certainly a few years did, back. yes. Yes, I did. And John emailed me a few months back and said, Robbie Williams would like to get in touch. Can I give him your details? And my first thought was, oh, that's cool. But then I sort of thought, hmm, sometimes in that situation, the other person has an agenda. Most typically, they want to promote something. But that wasn't the case with you, I don't think, was it? No. If I do have an agenda, I suppose it's sort of... I've done a couple of podcasts and I've read in the comment sections that I'm going to have to change my opinion about Robbie Williams. I used to think he was a dickhead, but now I quite like him. You know, it's the most normal that he's ever been. And that appealed to my ego that people were actually taken aback at, you know, who I am when I'm not being the jazz handy, all singing, all dancing entertainer. And I erroneously thought that if I do a thousand podcasts, some people that hated me might like me. (laughs) So that's my agenda, basically. I understand that impulse. And I think that you're right in a way to hope that the podcast medium might offer that more rounded picture of who you are. That's one of the reasons I like podcasting is because I do think you get a better sense of what makes a person tick than you would from any other medium I can think of, TV and film. and I, I, But it's, you know, we're in COVID and yeah. I've got no audience. I can't go and do my job. And this is part of my job is being on the spot, not sure what's going to come out of my mind next. It's exciting because it could cause an international incident. <laughs> It has done before. It's a buzz. And what you do is quality. I'm happy to be part of it. And that's my agenda. Cool. Thanks, man. Well, that's a nice, honest response to that question. Were you aware of me in the 90s when we were um, both doing our bits and pieces when you were in Take That and I was doing a TV show on Channel 4 with Joe Cornish? Yes, I was aware of you. I was aware of your disdain. I was thinking about it before we talked. I was thinking, now, have I been publicly rude about Robbie before? (laughs) And I was trying to rack my brains. And I knew that in the 90s, when you left Take That, like when you were in Take That, it was like, I didn't really have an opinion Mm -hmm. because it wasn't, that music wasn't for me. You know, it was, I was like listening to indie pop and rock and that kind of thing. So... Boy bands, that wasn't part of my um, sphere of interest. But then when you left Take That and you established yourself as a solo performer and then you just went through this run of kind of unavoidable, ubiquitous megastardom, 1997, Life Through a Lens. So that was a big year for me. That was when I, me and Joe were on TV doing... The Adam and Joe show, I met my wife. Uh, It was all like, it was a real seismic time. Uh And you were a big part of the cultural landscape, along with, you know, other things that year. Princess Diana Killed. Bittersweet Symphony was in the charts. Brimful of Asher by Corner Shop. Those were the songs that soundtracked the beginning of my relationship with the woman who would become my wife. And then... On billboards everywhere, inescapably, 
was Robbie Williams, Life Through a Lens. And the big hits from that record were, remind me? Uh, Let Me Entertain You, Angels, Old Before I Die. Right, okay. And they were absolutely huge. So you couldn't really, yeah, you were unavoidable. (laughs) And you were unavoidable with this kind of cocky swagger thing that you did and do, I suppose, to an extent. I think the thing is, you know, it's like, you know, when people lead with sexuality and you're kind of like, hang on, (laughs) I don't want to take part in this thing that you're doing, this sexual coquettish thing leave it out, you know. I am in your face and I am offering you a problem. And the problem is you either like the energy that I'm trying to display upon your person or you find it obnoxious. I totally get it, you know. It's like my whole act has been filling a space and trying to be someone against adversity and the adversity being is that you know so I'm not really a singer I do okay at singing but I'm not naturally gifted with what would be deemed a proper talent and I understand that (laughs) you know there's like my talent if you like is my personality it's the power of the personality which some people will be attracted to and some people will find obnoxious I get it you know without being without the obnoxious bit of my personality when I'm performing what would I have been you know because I I didn't and I don't make in certain areas of thought and opinion worthy records or you know it's like I love the same people that you love You know, it's like I I dig the same music that you dig. I don't make records like that. It's not what comes out of me. What comes out of me is like pure pop, you know, as simple as Middle England because I'm from Middle England. That's where I'm from. I mean, that's not technically true completely because you are a very talented performer. And even when I found you most obnoxious, (laughs) at no point would I have said, oh, he's got no talent. Because you clearly did. You're a great performer and you're a great dancer. And that's no small thing. And also a good singer. And you've written these songs, which whether you like them or not, are good. At no point did I ever say, oh, angels, that's a load of shit. Listen, I'm a a decent singer. But the thing is, my whole way of being on stage is derived from the... Look, if I knew and was told, oh, you've got an amazing voice ever since I was a kid, because like... When I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor because I realised that my voice was only okay, you know. So that's what I wanted to do is act. And I went into, I auditioned for Take That, got in, left Take That, and then thought, you know, well, I enjoy music. I like writing these words. I'm going to try this out. Everything that I've done on stage is born of insecurity. And I suppose that if you know that or you can pick that up and clear away the noise of what I'm trying to present with the smuggery and the arrogance. I think that people could find that inauthentic and I totally get why I would be annoying for people. 
you know. But it seems like a very counterintuitive strategy for someone who is clearly sensitive and thoughtful and doesn't enjoy being the target of people's irritation or contempt. Like it's a very high stakes game you're playing as as someone who's going to be affected by these things. Did you realize that you were that sensitive when you went into it, when you became Life Through a Lens, Robbie Williams? Oh, yeah. No, I've always known that I was hideously sensitive. So I say those things that I've just said with 2020 vision and with hindsight. If there was an Olympics for oversensitive, I would represent Great Britain. <laughs> Which sort of begs the question, why be in that world then? Why consistently pursue that level of scrutiny and exposure? Well, look, look, you know, when I left Take That, I wasn't aware that I was going to sell 85 million albums and go into stadiums. I just happened to find myself there because that was the progression of, that my career took. Mm-hmm. All the awards that I've won, everything that I've done... I didn't expect to happen. You know, I mean, through the power of cocaine in 1996, I thought I would had a chance of doing something, but not being the person that I am today. That being said, I'm working class background, totally dyslexic, can't add, can't subtract, can't really spell. And my only talent has been my personality that has propelled me to where I am. I write nice melodies. Sometimes I get the words right. Sometimes they're smart. Sometimes they're poetic. Sometimes they're shit. But sometimes I get it right. And I enjoy the creative process. I also have literally nothing else to do. (laughs) I was either going to get in to take that and become this, or I was going to start selling draw for five quid and 10 quid. And then I was going to start selling ecstasy. And then I was going to start selling cocaine to facilitate my own habit. And then I was going to go to jail. So, you know, that's kind of what was going to happen to me. It was like shit or bust. Mm -hmm. I didn't have options. My only option was to grab Willy Wonka's golden ticket and try and take over the factory. (laughs) (laughs) But now you have taken over, at the very least, a large part of the factory, and yet Uh you still, from time to time, as far as I can tell, struggle with these anxieties and this self-loathing. Doesn't an instinct for self-preservation kick in, especially now that you have a family and young children? I think from the outside point of view, sometimes people see a star talking about their struggles with anxiety or self-loathing or whatever it might be, the pressures that come with being that successful and that public a figure. And they sort of think, well, the unkind ones think, tough luck, that's what you signed on for, stop moaning. But maybe other people think, well, look, why don't you re-strategize and just sort of retire? Yeah, but that's not where I am now. Right. That's not where I am now or who I am now. And I haven't been for quite a while. Yeah. And in 2006, I did exactly what you've just said, which was sit on the sofa, wear a cashmere caftan from Morocco, <laughs> eat honey Dijon crisps and Krispy Kremes, 
watch The Real Housewives of New York, put on £35 and look for UFOs. Uh Uh-huh. So I retired in 2006. And in 2009, I just realised what I'd got from that, which is what I've taken with me today. I need a purpose. If I understand why when people retire, they die. So I did retire. I took myself out of the game. And when I came out of my cave in 2009, the bright light that shone on me, the intense light, the omnipresent Robbie Williams, that light had moved on and gone to other people. Then it became manageable because in 2006 I was what was considered to be in the tabloids box office you know it's like I was the story that was making them money so I was followed 24 hours a day two three cars and they would come to me and then make the story up to make them money by the time 2009 came I came out my cave and they'd moved on and they'd gone which, on one hand, is great. And then, on the other hand, was a bit like, Fallas? Fallas? Hello? But now that you have experienced that version of retirement, because how old were you then? You would have been still in your 30s, weren't you? 32. 32. Quite young, really. Yeah. So that was your first crack at some form of retirement. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be that way. No one's saying that your next holiday from the limelight might not be quite different or do you think are you now haunted by that first attempt at retirement do you think that you will just automatically go and load up on Krispy Kremes and (laughs) nice crisps no I heard somebody say you spend the second 20 years of your life trying to sort out the first 20 years of your life Mm -hmm. sounds right and I'm 46 You only notice it when the period of time has passed and you look back at it and you've gone, something's changed and something has changed. You know, I have got to a place where I am content and it feels, it just feels beautiful. Life's pretty fucking beautiful. Like I said to you before, it's not because I'm supercharged on a 10 going, hey, look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. <laughs> I'm actually just like at most days going, oh, Coco's just smiled at me. I love Coco. Or Teddy's just said a really smart thing. Oh, or my wife is empathic or all of the above. And yeah, I found clarity and I, I found happiness. That's great. And is that going to protect you through the next time that you know a wobble comes along things go wrong for all of us one way or another there's nothing we can you know people die people get ill someone says something mean about you whatever it might be yeah do you feel as if you're able to get through those now we'll see when those moments come yeah fair enough you can never say never but i can't believe that i will be dragged under into the rip curl of my mind and be kept there submerged You know, I can't imagine that that will happen. That's good, man. I'm glad. Thank you. How about you? How about me? Hmm. Well, I've got a few years on you. Are your parents still with us, by the way? Yes. So that's the thing that's happened to me in the last few years is that my dad died and then my mum died this year. 
And so I must say that has pulled the rug out from under me more than I expected, especially after I felt as if I'd stabilized quite a bit after my dad died. But then my mum died quite unexpectedly earlier this year. That was a bit of a shock and it, it seems to have sent me into a bit of a philosophical hole, which I'm not always in. But, you know, I've just been wrestling with a bit of a knot in my stomach that I wake up with every day. And I think it's it's a combination of all sorts of things, you know, lots of bad things, heavy things, running out of time and, and all that kind of thing. So it's a bit like that. And also, it's not helped by the fact that I'm reading at the moment a book called Ant Kind by a guy called Charlie Kaufman. Do you know Charlie Kaufman's stuff? I've heard of Charlie Kaufman, yeah. He wrote Being John Malkovich. Oh, yeah. And The yeah. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And yeah. he's got a film out at the moment on Netflix called I'm Thinking of Ending It, which is his adaptation of a, a horror story, as far as I'm aware. But he's also mm -hmm. written this book. Anyway, the book is like, I'm listening to it on audiobook. It's about 26 hours long or something. And so you embark on a journey like that. And it's not dissimilar to getting into a podcast. It inhabits your mind. It leaks into you, seeps into you. It becomes for a while, however long you're listening to it. I mean, 25 hours, that's usually about a month's worth for me of listening mm -hmm. before you get through that book. And it really colonizes your mind in ways that are quite stimulating but also quite depressing sometimes especially if the book like charlie kaufman's main themes seem to be how meaningless life is yeah here's the thing though you know 2006 everything that i saw about the industry that i was in everything that i'd achieved meant nothing weirdly enough simon cowell said and it was one sentence and it changed my philosophy. Embrace the madness. And I was just like, okay, this thing that is defeating me, I'm now going to embrace it and become it. Things changed. All the things that I place in front of me distract me from the inevitability of death and the inevitability of dealing with my own emotions and the futility of life. So I place a carrot in front of me that I'm always going towards. And I have the ability to have several different ideas going all at the same time. And I have a sort of scattergun effect with my ideas, which means one or two out of seven will get done and will get completed. Mm -hmm. But there'll be things percolating in the background all the time. And without that, for myself, I know I would spend an awful lot of time in a place that I wouldn't want to be, which is me dealing with me. Mm -hmm. So I kind of... I have the opportunity. I'm not saying that it's different from anybody else because you miss every goal that you don't shoot for. You know, you miss every basket you don't take the shot on. I'm taking the shot. And then I'm inventing different ways to take different shots because it's exciting. What I'm also finding about the whole process of my job or jobs is that and I know it sounds self-helpy, but it's true because 
Whenever I complete a project, I'm bereft of joy and I'm bereft of energy. But the inception of the project, the journey of the project, and then just before its final completion, I love it. And then three or four weeks before the end, I just nosedive. So uh, what I'm saying to you is this, think it up and then do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what I do do. And I relate to so many of those things that you just said. But I think everybody's different, obviously. You deal with all this stuff in your own way. But my thing was at a certain point, I thought, like, what am I doing this all for? Why am I so preoccupied with that idea of going to the next level or getting a bigger audience or some form of perceived success or whatever? What is that for? And if I was to achieve it, how would I feel? And I thought, well, probably I don't really, I don't know what it's for, really. If everything's pinned, when you're talking about like that crash you get after a project is completed, I've had that once or twice, but then I thought, well, why do I feel like that? Why don't you instead cultivate Zen? It doesn't have to be sort of like, uh, you know, gifts in the material world. No, that's exactly what I mean. So I feel as if I am cultivating that to some degree. And I do, I'm very grateful, as you were saying before, for, you know, small pleasures. I mean, it should be noted, obviously. I'm sure there there might be people listening to this would go, yeah, well... I'm sure both of you are somewhat insulated from the meaningless of existence by your extremely nice houses and all the advantages and privileges that you enjoy. And that's true. But the thing is that I don't care who you are. It comes down to many of the same things at the end of the day, your anxieties and and your ability to enjoy life. Yeah, I do think that, you know, people listening to it can feel that way. But I'm not speaking to them. I'm speaking to you. Okay. Anyway, that's aside, the question that I do want to ask you is, what are your projects? What are you doing? What journey are you on? What is it that you are achieving? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I've never, I've, I've honestly never thought in those terms. And I'm always interested by people who do think in those terms. I'm just meandering. You know, I think part of the reason that you used to wind me up as a personality, someone I didn't know at all, but just the image you projected was that I felt as if I could see in you a lot of things that I was struggling with myself. So here's the thing that comes across from the book I read about you, which was Reveal, 2017 book by Chris Heath. And correct me if I'm wrong, he seems to have spent like over a year with you and more or less transcribed everything that you did together and the conversations that he overheard and that he had with you during that time. So it's very Reveal. And uh, it's very honest and you seem to have said to him, keep it all in, man, even if it makes me look shit, even if it's behavior that most people, famous or not, would be embarrassed by or ashamed of. You've said like, fuck it, keep it all in, right? Yeah, I've said keep it all in because it's pointed out to me in interviews. I overshare. You know, Mm -hmm. I find that when I'm watching somebody on the television doing an interview and they're lying and you think, well, what they really mean is, but they're not saying it, it sort of bothers me. So I kind of edit myself as I'm going through and go, this is authentic and this is what I actually think. 
So I'm actually going to say that. I, you know, I, I, I do live in a bubble. I know I do. And I can't know what I don't know. I can only know what I do know and what is my life. Yeah. And also, you know, I've, I've kind of made so many excuses and felt so guilty about my success all of my life, you know, not on stage, but everywhere else have made myself small. I've made sure people are aware of how stupid I am, how I can't sing, all of those things. And I still do to a certain degree these days. But I make sure that it's okay for people to be okay with me because I hate myself. Mm. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? It, it's I do. Sort of, and I still do it to a certain degree. Uh, and it's authentic. And I, I mean what I say when I have my own misgivings about my own talent or who I am. But also at the same time, as a 46-year-old, I do get to experience abundance. And I do get to experience opportunity. And I can't have that be my fault anymore. Mm. Not in my own psyche and not in my own brain. I can't live that way anymore. Hi, this is a jingle about audiobooks. Not about my audiobook. This isn't an ad. It's just all about the medium. A-U-D-I-O-B. Oh, okay, sounds good to me. Because it's hard to find time to I-read, see? And this way I can be more literary, taking chances with stuff I might not read with my eyes, which very often means a nice surprise and perhaps takes me back to when I was wee and mum used to sit and read to me. But if back then she mispronounced a word, I wouldn't cry. And if her voice got clicky, I tended not to demand she die. But if an audiobook narrator grates, I can get into dangerous states quite easily. My audiobook is out now. Do you listen to audiobooks ever? No. Oh, it's quite enjoyable. I think if you like podcasts, audiobooks is a logical progression. But I very much enjoyed listening to Reveal, Chris Heath's book about you. It was read by an actor called Joe Jameson. Have you listened to that audiobook? Did you check it? No. Well, it's very well done. Joe Jameson does an excellent job. And he does impressions sometimes, or at least not full-on impressions, but he changes his voice to inhabit the character of various different people when they're speaking. And he's very good. He does a good version of you, sort of chippy northern drawl he does for mm -hmm. you whenever you're speaking. He does a voice for Guy Chambers, which is quite cold and posh. And I've got a couple of clips from the audiobook reveal. Yeah. I wanted to get your response to these. Yeah. And this is a clip in which you are and Guy Chambers are having a conversation. And Guy is talking about some pop star from the 70s. One afternoon, Guy starts talking about a mid-range 1970s music star, largely forgotten now, who has fallen on difficult times. He's really sad, that guy, says Guy. Sad? asks Rob. Yeah, Guy continues. He had a major breakdown. He had terrible anxiety about being a pop star. It was like Beatlemania. He couldn't leave his hotel room for years. And he went nuts and had a breakdown. And you see him now, and you can see on his face that something terrible happened to him. I don't leave my hotel room, Rob points out, indignantly. Well, you're not sad, says Guy. 
Then, in the tone of a man who isn't quite sure how he has found himself in a slightly awkward spot, readjusts this a little. You don't have a sad-looking... He says, then halts again. He has a third try. You don't look destroyed by who you are, he tells Rob. No, Rob agrees. But it is angles and lighting. So there you go, there's (laughs) there's that clip, which I was playing to you to demonstrate the power of Joe Jameson's impression. Is that a good Guy Chambers impression, as far as you could tell? Yeah, yeah, I was... um... I was in the room with Guy. <laughs> and how about his impression of you? Um, have you ever heard an impression of you? Very seldom. Yeah, well, the place that I'm from kind of lends itself when you hear somebody doing an impression of you to you. Yeah. You kind of think, I'm not backward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not slow. You know, it's it's that kind of thing where you sort of hear yourself back and you realise that to other people you might sound... Like a simple book person. Like a simple, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Somebody who doesn't read books, which I don't. I thought it was a decent impression of me. Stoke's a very difficult accent to do because you're in the middle of Liverpool, Manchester and Birmingham, basically. Right. And you've got bits of all of that, which was... Another thing about the insecurity of growing up in Staffordshire is because we didn't exist on the television. You were in between central television, uh, which was the Midlands, and Granada, which was the more Mancunian sort of television company. So we didn't exist. We never saw ourselves on the television. Our football teams weren't even represented with the scores of what had happened. And I remember that there was an advert for uh, Carpet World and they had several stores and one of them was in Stoke-on-Trent and it was like Drayton Manor, Litchfield, Telford, Stoke-on-Trent. And I can remember this like, pride inside that we were recognised from the godhead in the corner of the room, you know, that sort of, uh, oh, we do exist, which is why he does a very good impression of me. But it is a very difficult accent to do. Yeah. What would you think of somebody doing an impression of your voice? Yeah, it would unsettle me because I'm. my career has generally been more one of someone who is commenting on other people. So it's easy to dish it out. It's not so nice to um, have a plate of it <laughs> <laughs> yourself. But what would you think that your voice sounded like? What would you think that your accent sounded like? Well... Sort of posh, I suppose, and a bit drawly. Myself, Joe Cornish and Louis Theroux kind of adopted many of each other's conversational mannerisms. And so we do sound quite similar in many ways when we speak. And so I suppose if someone was doing an impression of me, it would be maybe a bit like this, kind of, (laughs) my dad died and I'm so depressed and I love David Bowie, man. And I've got a funny dog and I do a voice for the dog. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I just offended myself there. I think I was a bit harsh with myself. I think you were incredibly harsh with yourself. Uh, I would write a letter, a strongly worded letter to yourself. No, that wasn't very nice of myself. I expected better of myself. Yes. Here's an impression now of Rufus Wainwright from the Reveal audiobook. Rufus explains that the song he will play was written with his five-year-old daughter. 
the first ever Wainwright-Cohen collaboration. Better be good, shouts Guy. It's a nice sentiment for this evening, says Rufus. It's called Unfollow the Rules. She came up with that. Is that a good Rufus Wainwright impression? It's really good. Is it? Yeah, genuinely. I mean, like, it's pretty much spot on. And hmm. Guy Chambers is pretty much spot on too. So I guess that I must be pretty much spot on. Uh, I think, I mean, he definitely evokes a certain something in you. I think maybe he can be a little bit too... You're, you're a bit more upbeat in conversation, I think. Yes. He's a little bit, like, his impression of you is a bit heavy the whole time and a bit sort of weary and cynical. Yes. So the last clip I played, that was a moment in the book when you're at his house. No, you're at Guy Chambers' house in Hollywood. And I think it was the day that you heard David Bowie had died. Yes. So Rufus was proposing that you play a song together, one of Bowie's songs. And I think in the end, what did you play? Changes, I think. Yes. What actually happened when Bowie died was, like us all, you know, you devoed. And, uh, you know, you, you have a sense of loss, but you know that you don't really know that person. But it's in your waking thoughts and uh, you don't know how to feel about it. And then two days later, Dylan Jones from GQ wrote this piece about David Bowie and the crux of the piece was how last time he was speaking to David Bowie was about how he couldn't understand why Robbie Williams was successful, which really spikes your grief. <laughs> you know, it's like, I was already sad. Now I'm like, <laughs> there's no there's no word for that in the English language. Yeah, you know, what like, is it? It's, it's like you're you've been grief salted or something or grief salted there's no there's no word for <laughs> when somebody that you really rate doesn't like you so that was my memory of that moment it's funny though listening to that bowie anecdote in the book the funny thing about bowie was that he was very much the same sort of entertainer i don't think that he was being particularly sniffy when he describes you as uh so you know he calls you a song and dance man or something old school musical song and dance man which is what i am right but also i didn't read that as him being sniffy or contemptuous because that's what he always wanted to be himself he was always someone who wanted to do whatever it took to become a celebrity and he was always honest about it. He was not this kind of artist who had to express himself in very specific and uh, authentic ways. I mean, he was at various points and certainly more towards the end of his career. But initially, he just wanted to be famous. Mm -hmm. And so he always said that he ended up doing music because that was how you got famous in the 60s. You know, if the biggest celebrities in the 60s had been lion tamers, then he would have learned how to do some lion taming. You know what I mean? He was as kind of unartistic and unauthentic or inauthentic as that. So I think the idea that he would have looked down his nose at someone like you strikes me as being odd. And I don't quite believe that's what he was doing. I think maybe Dylan Jones was projecting some of his own snobbery, perhaps. Well, I'll take that and I'll run with it because, you know, love David Bowie. I don't know. I'm thinking, I'm interpreting it in a nice way. <laughs> you know, uh, but we never do that ourselves, though, do we? Ne we never interpret no, exactly. things in a nice way. 
it's hard to do. The only the only time that I've been able to appreciate anything that I've done is when I'm not aware that it's me. Right. <laughs> you know, like Guy Chambers sent me a few songs the other week and I listened to the first two and I was like, ah, oh, it's all right. Somebody else was singing something. And then the third one, I started listening to it and I thought, oh, this is fucking good. Well, that's a good lyric. I wonder who he's got to sing this. And it was me and I'd just forgotten that we'd, one of our many songs that we tried to do, that I was listening to me doing a song that I'd forgotten that we tried to write. And I was like, ah, oh, the only time I like me is when I, I'm not aware that it's me. When you've forgotten about you. Yeah, someone had forgotten about me, you know. And I was watching, somebody showed me the start of somebody's concert. Before the person had come on, it was just fucking incredible. And I was like, this is blowing my mind. I said, who the fuck is this? this I've got to have something like this. And it was my tour. <laughs> I'd just never been outside the front to see the start of the show. And it was 2006, Close Encounters. So I find it interesting when I take out my own judgment about me and who I am. Yeah. I quite find some of my work enjoyable. <laughs> that was a fantastic combination of honesty and some of the most amazing humble bragging I've ever heard. Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> I, for me, it's just interesting that if I separate me from my stuff, yeah. I like it. If I think about me being in my stuff, I don't rate it. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, just to go back to the audiobook and to your relationship with Guy Chambers, you've worked together again a few times since you took a break from each other for a long time, right? Yeah, he produced the last two albums. So do you feel as if you've genuinely put to bed whatever disagreements you had or personality clashes you had? Or is it a question of just sort of accommodating those differences now and, and kind of being mature about them? Well, Guy was in a seat of power for five albums because he was my musical mentor and also brother. What he said went you know, it was kind of, I didn't trust myself enough to understand my worth, what I did, how I created or what I created. And he was the professor and brother and mentor emotionally, I would say. And then I kind of, on the fourth and fifth album, a few things weren't adding up where I, I kind of realised that my best interests weren't necessarily Guy's best interests. And we fell out about that. Now it's kind of more, I love him. He's incredibly talented. We work really, really well together, but the position of power is mine because it should be and it has to be. It's my career. If he heard you saying that kind of thing, would he roll his eyes and go, oh, well, that's just Robbie? Or would he get pissed off about that? We talked about just recently about the split and he copped to a lot of behaviour, which really, really helped. Uh, for me, when I lose trust with somebody, I put my trust in people absolutely, which is a problem of mine. But then when I lose trust with people, it's very difficult to regain it. I think that's just human nature. As it happens with me and Guy, it's like I respect his talent 100%.
but I kind of... <laughs> I I find it very difficult to go into without bad-mouthing him, and I don't want to bad-mouth him yeah, because I don't, I don't want... need... There's actually no need. He's, yeah, yeah. he's a lovely guy with a great family, and he's very talented. Let's leave it at that. I don't want to pointlessly yeah. draw antagonism out of you just for the sake of it. But he sounds like a fucking bastard. I mean, I, you should get rid of the guy. What a fucking cunt. He's so up himself. He thinks so, that yeah. he's the one with all the talent. I, I know, I know, I know. Guy Chambers. Fucking Guy Chambers. Guy Chamber of Horrors. Guy Toilet yeah. Chambers. Well, I don't even know yeah. what that means. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, 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 no. A couple of random questions. Go. Inspired by things I've read about you in the papers. <laughs> yeah. I'm just keen to follow them up. Did you get a private island? No. Were you seriously thinking about buying a private island? Which private island is this? Is this a UFO island? No, I don't think so. I think it was just... This is something I read earlier this year. Robbie Williams is going to buy a private island. He's going to collect all the good people... And he's going to wait out the pandemic with good people on a private island. And I was interested to know, A, whether you had got the private island and B, which people you considered good. OK, well, this this is what, as you will know, it, it sounds I can't remember saying this, but it sounds to me like I'm on Corona Oki on live Instagram and I'm going as a bit of a hoot. Do you know what we should do, people out there? Everybody that's watching right now, we'll get an island. We'll just get you because you're good people. And we'll go onto that island and we'll just wait this out. Right. Okay. That's the only thing that I can think it is. I can't remember saying it, but it sounds like something like that. So what happens is any time that you say anything flippant or in humour... They take out the irony and they take out the comedy and they print it like you actually did a press conference where you <laughs> gave this information to the world. Robbie Williams, CNN, Sky News, I need you to be at my house. And then I, I walk down the drive and with a pre-prepared statement, I announce I'm going to buy an island and I'm moving good people to that island. And of course... That's not what I meant. I did say it, but that's not what I meant. It sounds like it's one of those things. All right, man. But listen, if you do get a private island, I'd love to come. It would be great just to come for a couple of days. Okay. Um, how many UFOs have you seen in total, do you think? I have seen one complete unidentified flying object above my head, sober. I could hit it with a tennis ball. It was the size of a penalty box area and it was above some trees and it came in silently, stayed there and then moved off silently. Witnessed by somebody else that was completely sober too. For unusual phenomena, I've witnessed quite a few things that I can't explain. When was that that you saw the penalty box UFO? Uh, 16 years ago. And how were you, If even though you were sober, at that point in your life, were you sort of emotionally fraught? I don't know. I'm trying to think of other factors that might have contributed to it. Not to immediately cast doubt over your story, but as a skeptic. Um, 
No, I was all right. I think that the juicy bits about my life are the sort of depression and addiction bits. The bits where I have months and then years of being all right isn't that juicy. That was a period in my life where I was taking my sobriety seriously and I would say mentally I'd been the best that I had been up until that point. Yeah, there was, this was flat, appeared over a tree, it was matte black underneath. It had yellow stripes, weirdly, like the Hacienda. <laughs> <laughs> it had weird, like, yellow workman, yellow stripes underneath it, as if it was a spaceship made by bears. Here's the thing, right? What I thought when it moved out of view silently, I didn't think little green men... I thought this, well, there's a bit of technology that we're not being told about. And I thought it was the American government. That's what I thought. Yeah, you thought, wow, they've invented a compact hovering parking garage. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And when you had that experience and when you've had other experiences like that, some of which are written about in the book, um, there's one story about you being in a studio and an area of darkness moves across the studio. It's like a sort of area where there's like negative light. Does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Negative light. It was a strip of negative light that elongated from the door, came through the middle of me and my wife and my two friends, and then went to the window and then followed itself out. The pre-thing to this was... I was playing a song of mine and I was whittling lyrics and I was looking on my balcony at the San Fernando Valley and it was a song about alien abduction and a gold disc appeared in the sky and, you know, not wanting to look a fool in my head, I was just like, I get you, Venus. I know, I see you, Venus, shaking your ass in the middle of the day. You won't fool me. The song ends and the disc just blinked out and I was like, still not having it. I put the song back on, lads. Song comes on, disc comes back. Song ends, disc goes away. I tell my friends to come out and watch this. I said, watch this, look over there. Song goes on, disc comes on. Song ends, disc goes out. It happens another two times. We're all freaking out. We all walk back into the bedroom and we're all like, what the fuck is happening? And that is when the negative light, the strip of negative light, elongated like a tape measure right the way through the bedroom, 33 foot, followed itself out and we just watched it go. Odd. And this is still sober time? Sober times. Yeah, okay. The thing is about, you know, the non-sober times, I never saw a UFO Mm -hmm. and I never saw a ghost. And I never had unexplained phenomena, you know. I just had incredible psychosis, but I didn't have anything that would justify the fear that was in my head manifesting itself outside of my head. The only things that have ever happened to me that have been highly unusual, I've been completely sober. Hmm. Have you experienced any strange phenomena in the last few years? Not since the kids have arrived. My focus, as soon as Teddy came, you know, my focus has just been on, okay, build a moat, build a wall, uh, protect the citadel, 
Uh, don't let anybody in. Go out, accumulate, make sure everybody's safe. Go to work, do the thing, look forward, make more, be things, be bigger. Be oh, That's just, you know, like... Ida has been the sort of emotional caring to the womb, to the bosom. And I have been the go out, forage and collect. And since my mindset has been on being a daddy, nothing weird's happened. No. Hmm. Do you miss it? Was it thrilling to see those things? Yeah, it is. It is thrilling to see those things. And it will become, God willing, if I get to stay alive for another 25 years, it will be a quest that I go on for a TV show or something like that, where I go and examine my own maybe mental illness or maybe there's something to it. Because what I do think is this, I think something's up. That's what I think. I think something's up. And I read everything to do with conspiracies, with UFOs, with Bigfoot, with ghosts, with ghouls, with absolutely everything. Folklore, myth, blah, 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 blah. I don't believe anything other than something's up. Everything that I read, I go, hmm, that's interesting. There is no hill that I would die on and go, this is what's going on. They are invading the world. We are in a, a alternative reality and this is a prison planet. Don't isolate that and just have that bit be the bit that I say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they are not my thoughts. What normal people, I say normal inverted comments, would probably discount. I go, oh, maybe, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, your mind is open. Yeah. Have you seen Sean Ryder's UFO program? I saw bits of it, yeah. I've spoke to Sean about it, and also me and him have done a song together. Have you? Yeah. Sometimes I try, quite often I try to channel Sean Ryder when I'm writing songs. Yeah, because he's got a very enjoyably strange kind of lyric box you know he also said to me i i was like you know there was kind of like it was just in by a tree in front of me you know he was just like yeah they come all the time rob you know and it's like he sees what he sees yeah is the song going to emerge that you've done together yeah the song will emerge plans change all the time but hopefully sometime in the spring Is that real melody? Heaven's in my phone charger. What? What? I left it right there. What? Did you see it? What? Have you got it? What? Where's my charger gone? What? Where's my phone charger? What? The battery is about to die. It was on the table. Round and round in their heads go the chord progressions, the empty lyrics, and the impoverished fragments of tune. And boom goes the brain box at the start of every bar. At the start of every bar. Boom goes the brain box.
I've really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, do you have any residual anxiety about where I'm coming from after my history in the 90s and maybe things that I might have said about you or whatever? I suppose that when you asked me about, you know, the do you come to this with an ulterior motive? I suppose that I kind of probably wanted to put things to bed for me because like I really enjoy your work and I enjoy your podcasts. I enjoy how smart you are. You make me laugh and I I like how you talk to people and the conversations that you have. And for me, you kind of, you and Joe represent a certain type of person that I would kind of like to come to and go, just for my own sake, really. Hey, um, this is me. This is what I'm about. And the residual stuff, I would say, is not really existent. But on the pie chart, a bit of me would wanted to be going, hey, remember, don't, because, come on, guys. <laughs> One of the motifs in the book Reveal is your relationship with your song Rude Box. Yes. And it's kind of a joke that runs through the book. And I, as far as I'm aware, your public appearances ever since that song came out in mm-hmm. 2006. And the joke is that you're sort of embarrassed about it. I mean, the, the truth underlying it seems to be that you sort of felt hurt by the reception it received and you were surprised that people took against it the way they did. And it sort of hardened as a moment of humiliation for you in your mind, despite the fact that actually, you know, it it did fine as far as I'm aware. It got good reviews from people like, uh, I'm talking about the album now. I'm just, this is Wikipedia telling me that all music gave it a four-star rating. The NME, eight out of 10. Music Week and Mojo, equally positive. But then some of the broadsheets were sniffy. And then you felt as if the response to the song was people just thinking, no, nah, I'm not having this. After several years of almost unbroken success and like you could do no wrong. Yeah, well, the you know, if you deem success to be the amount of records that you sell, that was the, the end of imperialism for me. You know, that record signalled the arrival of just doing extremely well instead of abusing well so much that it was the equivalent of stretching an elastic band from Stoke-on-Trent to Mars. It's not the album itself, it's the single, Rudebox. And when that came out, in my head, I was like, this is a bit of daft fun. You know, when you go... You know, TK Maxx costs less, Jackson looks a mess, bless. Uh, and you go, uh, up your jacks, you split your kecks. I'm not being serious. I mean, I don't want this puppy to be abused, but I'm also, it's just a bit of daft fun. Mm-hmm. That was the energy that I came with. Right, okay. That was a moment where I thought, oh, okay. I was rude about Robbie then. Because I remember when it came out, me and Joe were on XFM. The song was on the playlist, I think. And, yeah, I was rude about it. It was on XFM? I think so. No, I think XFM... I've never been on XFM's playlist. I'd have been on XFM as an example of a bad example. (laughs) Well, we did a spoof. Well, we, I did a spoof of it. It's funny that you say it was you just having a laugh and being yourself. So to you, it seemed like um, you were kind of being relaxed. 
But to me, it came across totally the opposite. It seemed like it was more calculating and it seemed as if you had kind of distilled all the things that had made your previous single successful and you thought, okay, how do I do that? What is it that I do that's really good? So I felt as if like here is someone who is cynically trying to encapsulate what makes him no, successful. No, 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 no. Cynical encapsulation of what's made me successful has only happened in the last two albums. <laughs> the, before then, look, these, this was just a stoned musing of a pop star in a mansion in Beverly Hills, mm -hmm. having a laugh with two of his mates from Stoke-on-Trent. The people that I wrote that with were in Candy Flip. Were they? Yeah. That, you know, and Danny made Strawberry Fields Forever, the cover, in his garage in uh, Sneed Green in Stoke-on-Trent. I can assure you there was no cynicism behind that record, uh, but I can assure you Rootbox was just me stoned going. <laughs> I asked my wife if she thought it would be a good idea to play you my version of it, and she said, see how the conversation goes. Okay, go. I don't think it's particularly horrible, but I don't want you to feel like I'm sort of roasting you from the past, even though that's exactly what I'm doing. Go on, roast me from the past. <laughs> uh, listeners, Robbie is now lying back wearing a look of kind of zen resignation. All right, here we go. Get a shoebox, fill the shoebox with the bollocks from your head. Okay then, here's a sort of song It isn't very good, but it isn't very long It's kind of like Beck with words by the streets If neither of them could be bothered I've got a shoebox under my bed Filled with modern words that I've heard or read I use it now and then when I'm rapping and that So I sound more in touch with the ordinary twat For example, drugs and happy slapping That's the kind of thing that today's kids dig And also Arctic monkeys, yeah They were on MySpace and got really big My finger's on the pulse, I'm so contemporary Kids on Ritalin, war is really scary Come on, Mohammed, get yourself a sense of humour It'll make you more attractive to the average consumer Would you like to come back to my house for rapping fun? Don't worry if you don't know how I'll show you how it's done We can use my shoebox It is full of rapping words they are nutty and they're fresh like brand new scheming turds. Shoebox. Fill the shoebox. With random bits of crap. Shoebox. Use the shoebox. To help construct your rap. Shoebox. Thank the shoebox. For giving you a hit. Shoebox. Close the shoebox. Now go and take a shit. Okay, more topical stuff. Pull them out of the shoebox till you got enough. How are you doing with it? There's more, but that's probably enough. Yeah, I, do you know what? I genuinely really like it, and I want to cover it. <laughs> There's a few bits that I would change, not that I, you know, desecrate your work. <laughs> um, two last things before I go. Thing one, I just thought you were great on the Horn Section podcast. Thank you. Your version of Angels that you sang was terrific. And the thing I loved about it, which made me think, oh, it was one of the moments where I, I felt as if, well, I've got him wrong, was that you committed to it so well. It was great. Like you didn't do a sort of parody of you doing it or some kind of meta version. Um, the horn section were playing a, a kind of reggae arrangement of Angels. 
and you really did it. It was great. Thank you. It was a, a wonderful moment in the lockdown um, that cheered me up. And the other thing was that I, I, I've been digitizing a lot of videos from the olden times recently, and I came across some stuff that I shot at the Brits in, I think it must have been 1999, and you were winning a lot of things. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. And you were a couple of tables away from us. I was sat with Travis, the band, and over to my right on the next table was Kylie, Mm-hmm. and you were two tables down over to the left and I was very overexcited I was like wow look this is I'm right in the middle of all the pop and it was funny seeing you there you were looking very dapper but you were also quite locked down it was hard to get a sense of where you were at emotionally and I was thinking like I wonder if he was having fun do you remember yeah no I, I never had fun at the Brits ever hmm. I always used to think I was in a room full of enemies and when I performed on stage I always felt like I was performing to enemies it never felt comfortable the awards for somebody that had such deep-rooted charlatan syndrome just made me melt inside it made it was like lots of fingers on a keyboard all going at the same time there was no enjoyment out of it at all You know, I I put on the facade of somebody that was arrogantly walking towards the stage to receive something that was due to them. That's not what I felt inside. What I felt inside was how could they possibly... You know, like I used to be on stage and I used to think, what have you cunts come to see this cunt for? That was my thought process back then. It was so warped and so unwell. So during the highest times of my success were the most depressive and the most deeply unenjoyable. That isn't unique to me. I've heard other people talk about the same sort of syndrome, Mm. not in exactly the way that I'm talking about it. But I know that if you speak to most people that have had that intense light shine on them, they were the most deeply troubled and the most deeply depressed that they've ever been in their lives and so it was with me i was do you think that um tim burgess of the charlatans has robbie williams syndrome no (laughs) no that's the joke i'm ending with (laughs) (laughs) hey robbie very nice to talk to you really nice to sort of meet you face to face as it were and to be at the point in our lives where we can relax in each other's company and not be uh making harsh judgments about each other vice versa uh and also if you ever want me to do it again i would love to have a cup of tea with you face to face properly and hang out and have a laugh yeah that would be nice okay well um when i come back to england let's meet up and um i can show you i'm not a con <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. 
these are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Rose. What do you think? Are you having fun out here? I think she is, because she's found a lot of pheasants and partridges sheltering in the hedgerows. Rose, oh, look, they're everywhere. (laughs) That one took off from the undergrowth, and a big, long string of shite was expelled from its rear as it launched into the sky. It was great. Oh, man. That's not nice. Damn it. My weather app says we've got solid this for the next week. Oh, well. Things could certainly be worse. Anyway, welcome back, podcats. That was Robbie Williams, of course, talking to me there. I'm very grateful to Robbie for getting in touch and for uh, making time to talk to me. Oh, thanks very much indeed, by the way, to Mark Nicholson, a.k.a. Ozzie Miso, artist and musician who created the backing track for my spoof of Rudebox back in 2006. Thanks very much indeed, Mark. Robbie was grooving along gleefully as he listened to it until the lyrics started. When he was guffawing with delight... Now, I'm not going to waffle on too much because it is fairly grim out here. But I wanted to tell you about a couple of things that you may enjoy. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast I had some Adam and Joe show news. And that is that all four series of the Adam and Joe show, the homemade comedy program I made with Joe Cornish for Channel 4 in the UK between 1996 and 2001 will soon be available to stream at the WOW Presents Plus website and app, which calls itself the only streaming service featuring all things drag, pop culture, and LGBTQ+. World of Wonder, who are responsible for the WOW Presents Plus streaming platform, are the production company that we made the Adam and Joe show with. And they were one of the pioneers of TV shows that explored and celebrated alternative culture in its various forms from the 90s onwards. I spoke to Fenton Bailey, co-founder of World of Wonder, on episode 72 of this podcast about some of their groundbreaking and genre-bending entertainment shows and documentaries, as well as the phenomenal success of RuPaul's Drag Race and its many spin-offs, many of which are available to stream on WOW Presents, all for just... Three forty-nine a month. First series of the Adam and Joe show will be available to stream from Tuesday the 8th of October 2020 and the other three series will become available one by one on subsequent Tuesdays throughout this month. 
Joe and I always talked about our show as being kind of a time capsule of late 90s pop culture and our hilarious take on it. And Wow Presents Plus is going to be the best place to enjoy the fragrant wafts of embryonic genius that drift out of that time capsule once you prise it open. Although I imagine there'll also be the occasional um, stench of ill-judged satire from a different time. You'll find a link to Wow Presents in the description of this podcast. Speaking of podcasts, Samira Ahmed is doing a new series of How I Found My Voice. It begins this month. I was a guest on How I Found My Voice, talking about my formative comedy influences um, a couple of years back, I think. And you can hear that episode wherever you get your podcasts. I've put a link in the description to the Intelligence Squared website they make the podcast. And as well as my episode, you can hear conversations that Samira recorded with people like Philip Pullman, Tracy Emin, Benjamin Zephaniah, Catherine Ryan, David Bedil, Bernadine Evaristo, Richard Branson, Michael Palin and Naomi Klein. So check those out. It's a well-made show and Samira is always an intelligent and engaging host. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his always invaluable production support and thanks to Matt Lamont for editing the conversation. Podcast artwork, as ever, is by Helen Green. Back soon for another slice of hopefully entertaining waffle. Until then, do you want a wet hug? Come on, let's have a wet hug again. <sighs> Onwards. Take care, I love you. Bye!